morning, everyone. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Catherine, the musicians. Uh, and what I'd like to do is uh, show you a few verses from the New Testament. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now, can anyone tell me what all those verses have in common? No, they don't. (laughs) Dorothy wants to know, do they have the same number of words in Greek? Answer, I have no idea, Dorothy. Dorothy. Anyone else? That's very impressive, Ryan. But no. They are, yes, but that's not what I was looking for, what they all have in common. One more guess. They're all directed at human beings, Pat. Yes, but not what I was looking for. Actually, they are all well-known, chapter 3, verse 16, verses. 2 Timothy 3.16, 1 John 3.16, Revelation 3.16, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. But the most obvious one's missing. And what I'd like to do as a kind of Advent series is look at or re-look at the best known 3.16 verse in the Bible. In fact, it is probably the best known 26-word verse in all of Scripture. And I'll guarantee that virtually every person sitting in this room could recite John 3.16 without too much prompting. The versions may vary a little, but it's a verse we're all familiar with, maybe even over-familiar with. Here it is. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, a couple of years ago, Max Licato published a book called 316. And it's a a book we're going to refer to a little during this Advent series. But here's how he described this verse. A 26-word parade of hope, beginning with God, ending with life, and urging us to do the same. Brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. We all need the reminder. The heart of the human problem is the heart of the human. And God's treatment is prescribed in John 3.16. I wish I could write like that. It's just brilliant. But what's the Christmas connection? Why use this verse as an Advent reflection? Well, Partly because it is a parade of hope, as Lucado describes it. And hope is one of the key themes of Advent. But secondly, this makes a great December series because the various components of this verse weaved together actually explain to us 
why Jesus had to come in the first place. Why God, as Dave put it, became one of us. And so for four Sundays in Windsor, that's this morning, we're going to return to this tonight, next Sunday morning, and then Sunday morning the 27th, we're going to look at and hopefully rediscover the depth and the breadth and the major significance of what are truly life-changing words. Now, as you look at all 26 of them, there's one that stands out. Or at least I think it stands out. And it stands out as radically different from the other 25. It's near the end, but it's where we're going to start. And it's a sobering word, and it's a haunting word, especially when you start to consider the implications of the word. And it's a word that raises difficult issues for us in the church. It's a word that forces us to face up to one of the most toxic subjects of the Christian faith. A subject I think we're increasingly running scared from, and at one level that's absolutely understandable. It's a subject that we downplay, we avoid, or at the best we dilute it, because it is so unpalatable. It's so uncomfortable to talk about this. It's so painful, and actually it's potentially so offensive. And the word that stands out for me is perish, and the subject is hell. And immediately you mention it, it's almost as if, in any context, a heaviness descends. And I know that the, the, the verse actually says, whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish. But you can't reflect on those words without recognizing that there's got to be a flip side. There's got to be an alternative outcome that those who don't believe in Jesus will therefore perish. But why start here? In fact, why deal with that bit at all? Could we not just dwell on the for God so loved? Or the idea of eternal life? Or even, okay, let's talk about the need for faith and belief. But why must we go here? And as I, as I was preparing for this, it sort of struck me that last week I spoke about money and this week about hell. Uh, do you know a handbook for subjects pastors should never talk about? Those are the top two. And we are going to look at love. I want to look at love this evening. And we are going to look at faith and belief next Sunday morning. And we are going to look, about, uh, look at eternal life on Sunday the 27th. But unless, unless we address this aspect of John 3.16, then I am in danger of promoting and proclaiming an incomplete gospel. Despite how, and I'm honest, how uncomfortable I feel at one level in talking about this subject. So back to Advent. Why did Jesus, God with skin on, become one of us, enter our world? Why did he move into our neighborhood on that first Christmas? Why did the light of the world step down into darkness? Well, contained within that one word is the answer. Here's the reality. And as I've said, this isn't popular teaching. Some people will perish. People we know people we love 
And I hope for you that is a really sobering thought. It's actually a chilling thought to me. The guys that I kicked football with yesterday afternoon could perish. And yet thank God, thank God that the reason Jesus came was so that people wouldn't have to. That's what Christmas is all about. The light of the world, as John describes him in his first chapter of his gospel, and the light of the world as Jesus describes himself in John chapter 8, stepped down into the darkness in order that people wouldn't have to remain in this spiritually bleak condition and that they ultimately wouldn't have to perish in this place. We'll come to that in a minute, of eternal darkness. Isaiah writing years before the first Christmas in that famous chapter where he predicts that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He begins that chapter with these words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and it's the great light, Jesus Christ, who is the hope of our world. Believe in him and you won't perish. Believe in him. Place your faith in him and you will not. That's the promise of God's word. You will not remain in darkness. But resist the light. And that's your choice. That's our choice. That's our society's choice. Resist the light. And you're left with the gravest of consequences. Many people today want very little to do with God. I think it's fair enough to say that many people today treat God's values with a certain element of suspicion or even contempt. And although many in our society admire Jesus from afar, very few are reluctant or resistant to being prepared to actually commit to his teaching or kneel at his cross. And for those who spend their lives keeping God at a distance, saying, God, please leave me alone. Let me just get on with my own life. The reality is that what they've got to realise, what we've got to realise is at the moment of our final breath, God will honour our request. God will, one day, if that's what we want, leave us alone. But is that fair? Well, as this famous verse says, whoever believes in him will not perish. So it seems that God makes the offer, but we make the choice. How could a loving God send people to hell? It's the classic question. It's the one we've all been asked. And all I can say is, he doesn't. We volunteer. We don't choose to place our faith in him and put our belief in him. God has said, if you do this, you will live, you will find eternal life. But if you don't, you will perish. And you can choose to cover ears and block out the message of hope and the message of forgiveness, the message of reconciliation. You can choose to blindfold your eyes to the light. The light of the world, the light of the cross of Christ. But as you exercise your right, please hear me, and I don't say this lightly, you damn your soul. You damn your soul and propel yourself recklessly to hell. You know, this morning in our second song, I don't know if you, you really take on board the words of songs you sing. I know sometimes I just sing through words. But we actually sang a song this morning that talked about the hope of heaven or the fear of hell. I don't know how you felt as you sang those words. Do we possess a fear of hell? Do I possess a fear of hell? Like honestly do I? 
I say I do. I say I do, but do I really? And we know that God doesn't want anyone to perish. I mean, he said that, 2 Peter 3, 9. It's not God's desire that anyone should perish. And he's gone to extreme lengths to provide a way out. That's what Christmas is all about. But at the end of the day, it is our choice. And in the time left before communion, and I think it was just, it was absolutely right, Dave, that you chose to put communion after I spoke. But in the time left, I want to do two things. I want to just set this verse in context. Where do these 26 words fit? What was going on prior to John writing them? And then I do want to say something about the disturbing reality of hell. This is the most famous verse in the Bible, and it takes place in the context of one of the most famous conversations in the entire Bible. It's that nighttime encounter, that discussion that took place between Jesus and a guy called Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a holy man, a member of the Jewish ruling council, a Torah scholar. And Nicodemus was impressed by Jesus, as many were, and as people still are. Nicodemus was impressed with this guy. And so his opening remarks are very complimentary, but Jesus immediately cuts to the chase. There's no time for small talk. There's no time for superficiality. It's straight to what really matters. No one can see the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, without being born again. And again, in commenting on this verse, Licato writes, Behold the continental divide of scripture, the international dateline of faith. Nicodemus stands on one side, Jesus on the other, and Christ pulls no punches about their difference. You see, there is a difference, because in the end, some will perish and some won't. It's either or. And the determining factor seems to be whether or not someone has been born again. Another one of those hackneyed phrases. And it's late and Nicodemus is tired and so it's no wonder he's completely confused by what Jesus has just said. What do you mean born again, Jesus? How does that actually work? And so Jesus goes on to explain that you've got to be born of water and, he says, of the Spirit. In other words, this is, and this is me, this is a God thing. Born of water and of the Spirit. This is not about human effort. I know there are some expectant mums here this morning. But each baby born contributes virtually nothing to the delivery. Mum exerts the effort, pushes, agonizes and delivers. Sorry to remind you of that and what would I know. Uh, But when it comes to being born again, the same is exactly true. Spiritual rebirth requires a capable parent, not an able infant. Say that again. Spiritual rebirth requires a capable parent not an enable infant. This is a work of God. You and I contribute nothing to this. It's part of the scandal of the gospel. God makes it all possible. God loves. God gave. Jesus came. We believe. We are rescued. In the Greek language, one definition of the again part of born again depicts a repeated action that requires the original source to repeat it. A repeated action that requires the original source to repeat it. And the idea is that God, the original source of life, the one who creates life in the first place, is therefore the source needed to recreate life. God makes it possible that every single one of us can be born again. I don't really know how to explain that adequately. I really don't. But God doesn't want anyone to perish and therefore he's taken the initiative. 
He got proactive right from the moment sin wrecked his world, culminating in that history-defining moment whenever Christ was born. God has done it all. And what we're invited to do is accept it and live forever rather than perish eternally. And it seems that, uh, and I love, it seems that Nicodemus took up that offer. Because the next time you encounter him in the gospel story, it's after the crucifixion, whenever he shows up with Joseph of Arimathea and the two men offer their respects and actually bury the body of Jesus. So John 3.16 comes in this context of being born again, which, as I say, may be an abused phrase, and it is an abused phrase, particularly in Northern Ireland. It's a phrase that needs to be recovered because it is such a hope-filled phrase. Because the result of it means that we no longer have to face the prospect of perishing nor the grim prospect of hell. Hell is a hideous topic. And yet, the one that I claim to follow, Jesus Christ spoke about it more than anyone else in Scripture. 13% that's reckoned of his teachings. Two-thirds of his parables contain material about hell and related issues. But please be clear, and if you hear nothing else this morning, just hear this one phrase. Jesus spoke about hell as an act of compassion. Jesus spoke about hell as an act of compassion. He took no pleasure in talking about what lay ahead for those who didn't accept, who didn't believe. And so he went out of his way to speak of it as an act of compassion in order that no one, because he knew his father's heart, he knew that his father didn't want anyone to perish, and neither did he. And I realize there's a lot of debate on hell. And there's a lot of confusion about hell. Even denial. So what I want to do is say three things about this eternal destiny based on one of the 27 parables Jesus told. It's one of the most significant whenever it comes to looking at this issue. And I know, before anyone challenges me after, and and you're right to do this, I know that this is a parable primarily about money and about riches and about our attitude to the poor. And if you were here during the summer, Roy looked at this parable particularly from that perspective. But this is also a story that forces us to consider the realities of both heaven and hell. And for those who were here in November 2007 when I came to visit, uh, I actually spoke on this parable. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's the only parable where a character is given a name. It's the only parable where a character is given a name. And it's not the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. It's a different one. So I'd like us to read it. And in case anybody's probably wanting to fall asleep, let's stand for the the public reading of God's word. Okay, Luke chapter 16. Let's stand together as we read it. Luke chapter 16, and I'm starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades or in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Please take your seats. This... uh, this is a story, this is a parable, it's a story, it's not literal history, and therefore you've got to be really careful how you read these things. But what that does indicate is three things about hell that hopefully should keep us focused. It's a place you don't want to be, it's a place without hope, and it's a place you don't have to go. A place you don't want to be. You know, no sane, thinking human being should ever want to go there. And the reason I say that is because of those words, in hell... Where he was in torment, he called to him, have pity on me because I am in agony in this fire. It is disturbing, it's uncomfortable language that conveys that this is a truly horrendous place. And the contrast between this place and where Lazarus is, is stark. In verse 25 it says, but now Lazarus is comforted here. Wherever Lazarus is, is a place of comfort. Whereas wherever the rich man found himself was agony. And the very fact that even a drop of water might bring some relief says everything to me. And it's interesting that in life dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores. Whereas now this rich man would give anything just to lick Lazarus' finger. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about this place being somewhere where there's weeping. And I know, I know the languages, and people talk, debate this. There's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth, and it's like spending an eternity in this fiery lake of sulfur and, and all of that. But whatever the actual nature of hell is, the one thing I can stand up here and say with absolute confidence is this, that hell is a place you don't want to be. And secondly, hell is a place without hope because the distance between heaven and hell has been fixed. Verse 26 says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. Those who want to go from one place to the other just can't. It's not possible. Once in hell, your destiny is eternally set. There's no turning back. There's no second chance. There's no rerun. Hell is not a correctional facility. It's not a reform school with the prospect of passing out after you've served your time. This is a place of total, total, absolute hopelessness. And the rich man realizes this. 
because he turns his attention from himself because he knows I have no hope but he turns his attention from himself to his family who still have hope who still are alive he's got five brothers at least and that takes me to the final point hell is a place you don't have to go and like the rich man's family and the way Jesus tells the story I think is incredibly interesting he says listen they have access to Moses and the prophets in other words they have access to scripture and it's in scripture that you encounter God it's in scripture you discover truth it's not God's desire that anyone should find themselves in this place and therefore he's revealed himself in scripture therefore God has gone out of his way to communicate to us in his word yes in the word that became flesh but also in his written word so that he could communicate a message of forgiveness and hope and destiny And as I say, I realise that we live in a time, we live in a culture, we live in a context where fewer and fewer people have any time for this. Any time for it. It's interesting possibly to some, but they put it alongside Shakespeare. Just a piece of impressive literature, but nothing more than that. And then rather than read it, what people now want to say is, seeing is believing. Don't give me a book. Don't talk to me with words. Let me see proof, real proof, tangible proof, which is exactly what the rich man thought. Because verse 30 said, listen, see if only a dead person would show up at my brother's front door, then they'll repent. But it doesn't work that way. You see, Jesus raised dead people. Jesus restored sight to the blind. He healed cripples. He fed thousands from virtually nothing. But in the end... People might have been impressed, but very few called for his release. Seeing is actually not always believing. And so Jesus finishes the story by saying, listen, see if they don't listen to this. They're actually not going to listen even if a dead person shows up at their front door. Everything you and I have and need for life now and in order to prepare for the life that is to come here. So, why Christmas? Why must we celebrate the birth of Jesus every year? Because every human being faces the danger of perishing. Forever in a place you don't want to be. Forever in a place without hope. But because God loved, because God gave Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas, the danger can be averted and you don't have to go there. John 3.16 is a parade of hope, but do not miss the undercurrent. People will perish. Hell is a reality. And if anything I have said this morning you want to talk to me about or pick pick up with me on, then please do talk to me afterwards. And I do hope and pray that you will engage with the rest of this series. Because as I say, this is just one of four. It sets the context for the rest of the verse, which we will come back to tonight. Dave.